I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Warning The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting disturbing or unnerving Please note viewer discretion is advised at all times Sit back and enjoy Why don't you tell me what might have happened on the night of June 12th, 1994. <laughs> and let's just walk no, through the night. I, well, first of all, this is a very difficult one to do this. Uh, it was very difficult for me because it's hypothetical. I know and I accept the fact that people are going to feel whatever way they know to. <laughs> uh, this guy, Charlie, shows up. The guy we have used to become friends with. And uh, I don't know why he had been by me. Cole's house, but it told me you wouldn't believe what's going on over there. And I remember thinking, well, whatever's going on over there has got to stop, right? The park in the alley. Yeah. And you put on a wool cap and gloves. Uh, in the hypothetical, I put on a cap and gloves. Right. Yeah. You reached under the seat for um, a knife, but I believe he took it. Charlie took the knife? Yeah. I go to the front and I'm looking to see what's going on. Um, and I can see that mm-hmm. it appears like Nicole had candles up all the time. She really did to keep her overhead down, I think. And music was on. And uh, while I was there, a guy shows up. You know, so Ron Goldman comes in the back gate. Yeah. A, a, a guy that I really didn't recognize. I, I may have seen him around, but I really didn't recognize him to be anyone. In the mood I was in, I started having words with him. You get into a fight. Nicole comes out. A verbal, a verbal, a verbal fight. fight. Got a little loud, and by that time, uh, Nicole had come out. And we started having words about who is this guy, why is he here, what's going on. And, and she says, this is my house, get that the F out yeah. of here. Yes, and uh, which I didn't like because, once again, this is very, very irritating. And I think Charlie had followed this guy in, one make sure it was no problem. And he brought the knife. As things got heated, 
uh, I just remember Nicole Phil and hurt herself. And uh, this guy kind of got into a karate thing. And I said, well, you think you can kick my ass? And I remember I grabbed a knife. I do remember that portion, taking a knife from Charlie. And to be honest, after that, I don't remember. Except I'm standing there and there's all kind of stuff around and... Um, what kind of stuff? Blood and stuff around. You know, you know, I hate to say this, but this is not I'm right, sorry. Right. I know we got to back off again. Right. <laughs> I'm I sorry to try to make people think that I'm. Welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast. We are back once again with a brand new case, an exciting case, a big case, and I'm joined by the boys, producer Dan. Hey, Tom. And Ben Carter. Good afternoon. Good oh, evening. Good morning. Right, ben. How, you How are you guys? You all right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. It's Ben, right? My name is yeah. Ben. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. It's good to have you back. Yeah. The audience don't know this, but he has been gone a while because we batch we batch record, don't we? But uh, you've been around the other side of the globe. I have been. A bloody globe Been in New Zealand, seeing yeah. the family, scenes and friends. Lovely trip. It's one of those trips where you don't feel refreshed when you come back because it's about 31 hours travelling. Yeah. And you feel less refreshed when, you, when your wife has booked the wrong airport and you've got to get an Uber to the other one where you park the car. But there you go, you know. Yeah. There you Good go. to have you back, though. Yeah. And yeah, you're, you're yeah. back with some a neon pink zipper and mm. a neon sign behind you. For the audio listener, we have a neon sign behind us. Very, very snazzy. Uh, and you're very happy with it, aren't you? I'm very happy with the installation, which was done by moi. Yeah. I've seen his toolkit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oi, oi. And what I put it up with. Um, Ben did ask. No, um, we don't need to. Oh, it's filming. Uh, yeah, we can cut back to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah. just played. Ben asked this earlier. New hammer, Dan. Yeah. So very suspicious. I got ages ago, but I never used it till yesterday. Has it got a uh, spirit level in the top of it? No. What is that? Magnet. What is that? Yeah, spirit level in a hammer, which is which is not a thing, uh, but we've learned things today. Yeah. And we're going to learn a lot more in this case, aren't we, Ben? Absolutely. Uh, the trial of the century, a very big case indeed. One that we've kind of mulled about doing for, for quite some time. We see always this, but I think we've ever discussed this one before. Yeah, but we've mulled it. We've kind well, of, you might mould it by yourself. Um, yeah. You make a mountain of a molehill right now. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Like you said, three. <laughs> Fuck's sake, mate. <laughs> It is the case of O.J. Simpson. We wanted to put some kind of distance between the Adnan Syed episode uh, a few weeks ago because we saw some similarities. But with this one, woof, lot, what? Really? Well, ex-spouses getting killed and dodgy trials. Spouse. Yeah. Three. Dan. Three. 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 One, two, three. Three. Tongue between your teeth, not your lips. One, two, three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been practicing, boy. No, you haven't. I just told you. <laughs> she told you how to do it. You but yeah, is it, regardless, it's the case of OJ Simpson. 
yet also known as the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson, the murder of Ron Goldman, the trial of the century, the people versus OJ Simpson. Mm. Yes. Duh, 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 duh. A few titles there. Um, but it's a massive case. It's one some podcasts have done, sort of. I had a little look on the way over. 18 parters, 20 mm. parters, and we're here to do it in one part. So we will be condensing it where we can. So please excuse our brevity where possible. But it's a fascinating one. There's so many twists and turns. It's like a um, trip to Birmingham on the Spaghetti Junction. Lot going on this week, though. Lot going on, isn't there? Yeah, lots of lots of twist turns in this one. It actually reminds me of a trip. Um, <laughs> nah, not to Birmingham. Yeah, this case uh, is definitely one that, from being you know from the UK growing up, you would have referenced in a lot of American TV shows. A lot of jokes made about, which didn't really understand, didn't really get the point. But then doing more research into this, it's obvious why it was such a big case. I think it was one that like really hit over there. Everyone talking about it, it was the mm-hmm. biggest thing ever. I might be right in saying it maybe didn't travel across here as much I think in, we especially very... in the the culture I don't think it was like everyone was gripped to know what's going on as such mm. so we were obviously infants when the trial was happening but yeah I was we, we both were yeah, oh, it was okay. a couple of months apart so <laughs> we both. Dan was probably getting on no he's younger than you no we've, uh, we've talked about this oh okay yeah my parents certainly were captivated by this case and yeah I was trying to think of if there was a modern day equivalent because obviously we've had the recent like in terms of trials that um, Ospitorious yes yeah there was the slightly different context but the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial I was thinking in terms of sports American football it doesn't matter no but I said different context so I covered myself there so (laughs) no 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 Um, I was thinking modern day UK terms so it was a bit more sort of the guys get it David Beckham kills Posh Spice goes on the run in a uh, uh, they have to be up, broken up there, don't they? Well, yeah, they divorce first. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, I missed the divorce part. In terms of how the celebrity status, that'd be quite a sort of life-alike almost. So this case primarily focuses around two individuals, O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown Simpson, although there is a second uh, victim, which is Ron Goldman, who tends not to be mentioned as much. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the backgrounds of O.J. and Nicole, and we're also going to discuss how Ron came to be in the picture. We will then move on to the infamous night of June the 12th, 1994, before going on a bit of a deep dive into the subsequent trial, the aftermath, and the legacy of the case. So there's lots of things going on. As I said, loads of twists and turns. Well, there's there's so many dynamics at play, including race, fame, power, money, corruption, and privilege. And yeah, it's just the more I learned about this case. And, and as we said, there are other podcasts out there that have done big multiple parties on this episode the more unbelievable it becomes so it's uh yeah it's an interesting one i'm excited to jump in it with you boys i'm excited to jump into it with you boys so jump in it i can jump in it but jump into it with you boys obviously obviously So we're going to go into the early life of the three individuals that this um, case is based around, starting off with O.J. Simpson. Orenfile James Simpson was born on the 9th of July 1947 in San Francisco, California. He was the youngest of four children born to Eunice and Jimmy Lee Simpson. My niece. Eunice. Oh, sorry. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. O.J. had an older brother called Melvin Leon Simpson and two sisters, Shirley and Carmelita. The majority of the wider Simpson family were from Louisiana, and O.J.'s aunt is said to have been the one that chose the name Orenfal, which she took from a famous French actor that she liked. Had a little look, Orenfal means pine tree. I was just literally Googling that. Yeah, 
yeah. pine tree, apparently. However, Oren Farr was referred to as OJ from birth, and we'll obviously refer to him in this episode as OJ, because that would be that would just double the length, wouldn't it? <laughs> in a way. Yeah, yeah. OJ claims that he actually wouldn't even know that his birth name was Orenthal until in the third grade when it was read out by a school teacher when she took the register. Allegedly. We don't know that for yeah, sure, I mean, though. OJ's how does he even know? The count and stuff is very dodgy. Yeah. But, uh, we'll get into that later on. But if she's there going Orenthal, he's like, that's not even similar what, to OJ. me? <laughs> I think the teacher's losing her fucking mind. <laughs> Let me put my gloves on. Oh, that doesn't fit. Um... It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very interesting name, Orenthal. Orenthal. It was, it's quite an intimidating name. That's why I made Ben read the first paragraph, because I was like, oh, I'm going to say it wrong. But mm-hmm. or, Orenthal. I mean, Orenthal. and Carmelita. Which looks like, Carmelita. It's, it looks like it's spelled like Caramel Eater. Um, it's an interesting name as well. Yeah, and Shirley. Shirley's just... Don't call me Shirley. Naked gun. Foreshadowing. The Simpson family lived in a house... Evergreen Terrace. Yeah, I knew that was fucking coming. The Simpson family lived in a housing project in the low-income neighbourhood of Potrero Hill, which is just outside of San Francisco. The area was well known for its poverty and crime and was said to have been quite a rough area to raise a family. OJ's mother Eunice worked as a hospital administrator, whilst his father Jimmy worked as a chef at the Federal Reserve Bank. Didn't know they had chefs at banks. Just checks at banks, maybe, but not chefs. (laughs) Fucking hell! And he wrote that down in there. Not chef part. Not chef to bang. Chef. I'm a chef. The Simpson family were very much working class, and much of the community OJ was raised in was fueled by crime and racial prejudice. OJ was exposed to gang violence, robberies, and homicides from as early as the age of four. Wow. That's 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 early. I mean there's no age to that's good to have been exposed to that, but that's early. Jimmy and Eunice would divorce in 1952 after their marriage became strained. OJ was just five years old at the time of the divorce. As a result, he and his siblings would see very little of their father, who relocated to the Bay Area. His mother would end up raising the four children on her own, with a little bit of help from her family and friends. OJ had a particularly fractured relationship with his father, as a result. So an interesting note about OJ's father, Jimmy, who obviously played, um, as a result of the divorce, quite a limited role in OJ's upbringing. He was actually quite a popular drag queen in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, and later in life he would come out as gay and unfortunately contract AIDS, passing away in 1986 as a result. OJ's mother, Eunice, worked long hours most days of the week in order to support the family, which meant that OJ often had to fend for himself and his siblings. There was often burglaries and criminal activity directly on the streets outside of the family home, which would have been a harrowing experience for the Simpson children, who were home alone and without a father. OJ claims that these experiences would help define him later in life as someone who was fearless. As a youngster, OJ struggled with multiple health issues, including rickets and asthma, which made it difficult for him to participate in physical activities and play games with other children on the street. His rickets developed to the point where he had to wear leg braces from the age of two, three to five. Is that what Forrest Gump had? Very Forrest Gumpy, isn't it? Well, this whole case, well, not the whole case, but the the football and the running. And the running. (laughs) And the legs and the rickets. I don't know if he had rickets, but he had leg braces. I think he probably had rickets. Did a lot, though, Forrest Gump. Didn't do what OJ. Obviously. He just said yes to my question. Yes, sorry. Right? sorry. Yes, I think so. Yeah, there you go. This did cause OJ to form a bow-legged stance. However, he eventually overcame these challenges and would go on to become an excellent athlete in high school, excelling in American football, basketball, and track in particular. Mm-hmm. Probably horse riding. Why don't you get into that? Yeah. Probably not, probably not a college sport. Horse polo. Again, not really college Bow-legged uh, archery. I guess. Cowboy. 
That's not a sport, is it? <laughs> Sports day. Well, then let's hit Cowboys. Oh, okay. There's OJ. The pig and shit. Despite his athletic success, OJ's grades were not great, and he struggled academically. He eventually dropped out of the City College of San Francisco, where he was playing for their American football team, in order to pursue a career. In his early years, OJ and his older brother Melvin began to earn money by scalping tickets and collecting seat cushions at Kezar Stadium which was the former home of the San Francisco 49ers football team. And later in life, when attending middle school and high school, OJ helped to organise school dances, hiring a band and ballroom and charging admissions to students in attendance. What you see from an early age is he's clearly a quite a thrifty youngster looking to make a bit of a, a, a sweet penny. But he was always, yeah, always to, happy to graft, always looking at a way to sort of do business. Mm. Yeah. Sure. Entrepreneur. Yeah, entrepreneurial spirit about the... Young OJ. Just one way you put it. <clears throat> Thank you. As we mentioned earlier, OJ was raised in a housing project in Potrero Hill, and drugs, crime, and poverty all ran rampant. It is perhaps as a result of this that OJ opted to join a street gang as a teenager. He became a member of the Persian Warriors. Yeah, when I was wondering, I was trying to remember what our street gang names was. It was mine. Was it'll be all right on the night? Yeah, mine was be. I think it would be even better on the night. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Persian Warriors is quite nice. I like Warriors, because it just makes you think of the film Warriors. Warriors. Come out to play. Yeah. Persian Warriors. Persian Warriors. Aren't they the villains in 300? I don't know. I think I've only seen that film once. Go on the throne. But I just like the big pit in that. Yeah. I'm not talking about Brad. Um, a gang that was notable for petty crimes, including thefts and selling stolen goods. Ojo was soon arrested and placed in a juvenile facility at the age of 14. The following year, he was placed in the San Francisco Youth Guidance Centre, a juvenile detention centre for repeat offenders. OJ claims that he decided to turn his life around when baseball star Willie Mays visited the facility and encouraged him and the others incarcerated to reform and focus their energies on achieving something positive in life and focus their time on something they were passionate about. It is this meeting that inspired OJ to do more of his life and so when released he continued to pursue a career in, in American football and also ended up graduating from Galileo High School in 1965 whilst playing for the team the Galileo Lions. That's a better game. <coughs> the, the Galileo Lions. The Persian Warriors versus the Galileo Lions and stepping up at first base Willie Mays. That's a good name isn't it, Willie Mays? Yeah, I will amaze you with my hmm. Willie. Not that. Huh? My Willie may amaze you. Right. It may. Freak show. Step right up. Willie Mays. <laughs> oh he is a man. <laughs> I can guarantee he is a man, ladies and gentlemen. I got his bus ticket right here. We need to weep. Have a look. <laughs> the Willie will amaze you. Cross your eyes, you'll be able to see it. <laughs> you can smell it. <laughs> but you can't touch it. <laughs> Willie Maze. Yeah, you're right. Whilst at Galileo High, OJ fell deeply in love with a young lady called Marguerite Whitley. Great names in this case, isn't there? Marguerite Whitley. And Marguerite would essentially be his high school sweetheart. And though she would describe him as being absolutely an awful person at the time, she would eventually accept OJ's proposal the year after the pair graduated. In 1967, 19-year-old OJ married Marguerite, and the pair would go on to have three children together. Two girls and one boy. Arnell, Jason and Aaron. Aaron would sadly pass away at the age of two when she fell into the family swimming pool and drowned. Which is... Horrible. So Marguerite Simpson, which you probably would have Marge. Marge Simpson, mm. yeah. But not that's not me overlooking Aaron. Yeah, and that's... Homer O.J. Simpson. Yeah. Um, Sorry, what were you going to say? 
I said I wasn't trying to overlook Aaron passing away sadly at that age. But yeah, that's that's tragic. I hate seeing those videos which are like for baby. I mean, they're a great product, but the baby life preservers. Have you seen those? Where it's like they literally throw a baby into a, a body of water, and it's something to do with their. They will naturally revert oh. to the, that sort of. For the audio listener, I'm kind of looked like I was being possessed a little bit then. Arch in the back. It's like if you're in a very salty what, body of water. What films are you seeing with possession? Because I don't think... It just, it just looks like you're laying on the bed. Oh, I've seen... Oh, yeah, he was possessed last night. It's just like she's sleeping. Have you, do you know what I'm talking about, Dan? They literally... To advertise that how good their products are, they literally throw babies into water. I've never seen this before. So no. There'll be someone that's listening to this that knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's rare. <laughs> but that is, that is very sad. After the pair were married and with limited career prospects, OJ considered enlisting in the US Army and heading over to fight in the Vietnam War. However, upon seeing one of his close friends and former gang members return to the US with quite severe war wounds, he decided against this and so re-enrolled at the City College of San Francisco. Here he played running back and defensive back and was so good that he ended up playing for the Junior College All-American team. Yeah, if you're just about to sign up and enrol in the army and then one of your good mates comes back with like, I don't know, a, a leg that's gone. Are you a medical man? In a previous life, yeah. Oh no, it appears that he's got a leg that's gone. <laughs> but that, that, that's enough to put you off, isn't it? As Tom said, um, OJ's ended up playing for the Junior College All-American team. I'll shock you, I'm not a big All-American, I'm not a big American football. You're going to say All-American Rejects fan then? They've got a couple of bangers. They've got a couple of bangers. Damn, 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 swing, swing, damn, and then that slow one. It ends tonight. Move it's quite along, sad. Along, yeah, that's banger. Yeah, OJ's skills on the field seem to be his speed, his sharpness, and his agility. He was able to run huge lengths at a frightening speed. The lengths they were huge. He could run fast, didn't it? He? he could run really fast as well, but the lengths that he ran, they were those lengths. Run a few lengths now. He run widths faster as you, well. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah, I mean. Films. I know about American football. Yeah, and he would blitz and meander between opponents effortlessly. Over the next two decades, he would drastically rise through the ranks and gain notoriety as one of the best football players in the country. American football players in America. <laughs> With this came a frenzy of celebrity and money, something that OJ had not experienced before in his life. Now, OJ's sporting achievements and accolades are well known and listed in depth online. However, as we are a true crime podcast and we're covering the trial and the murders, I'm going to focus a bit more on, on those things rather than his sporting accolades. Really? Because you it sounded like you had Miranda in between opponents effortlessly at the huge lengths. It sounded like you were really lengths. on it. Yeah, yeah really, man. Yeah. Really on it. I am actually a sports guy. Yeah? Yeah. Just American football is a bit, Go on a a bit beyond me. Yeah. That's fair. You like football? I, soccer. I like soccer. And that's it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that is it. Yeah. I could watch the Ryder Cup. If I had to. I didn't know you liked horse riding. When I did look at this, I mean, the amount of achievements he's got and the records he's set it is pretty impressive. But again, we don't need to list them, do we? But they are all uh, very well documented online if you do want to check it out. OJ would go on to play for the USC Trojans, the Buffalo Bills and the San Francisco 49ers, set many records and winning many awards. He would also be listed in multiple Hall of Fames and was also included in the NFL's 100th anniversary all-time team. During this time, OJ acquired the nickname Juice, which is a play on his initials OJ. Every time as well I see Juice now, is I just think of David, is it David Schwimmer, the um, guy from Friends? Yeah, Ross. Yeah. Oh, Juice, Juice in the series that i've never watched friends but at school i was told i'd be a bit of a ross that makes sense what does it mean 
just a bit wet. Oh. So that's why they were saying it. Wasn't the one you'd want to be. I think you could be either Ross or Gunther. Gunther. <laughs> Doesn't sound good. Or the guy that lived across the street from them that they poked with a stick in one episode. <laughs> I've not seen it. I'll stick with Ross. I'll stick with Ross. So OJ, obviously an abbreviation for orange juice. Do you know what, do you know what um, OJ's favourite band was? OJ Simpson? Yeah. I, off the top of my head, no. Pulp. However, the name juice was also used as slang for electricity or electrical power, and the nickname therefore became a metaphor for the powerful entity. The Buffalo Bills offensive line at OJ's peak was nicknamed the Electric Company. You'll be better than, than me at this, but there are similar sort of, so they're called their forward line, the Electric Company. There are some more kind of um, football analogies like that. So there was obviously the SAS, mm-hmm. Shearer and Sutton. The only other one I thought was MSN, Messi, Messi Suarez and Neymar. Send you a message. <laughs> Send you a nudge and get a goal. And then BMW, which was Brentford's BMW attack, Ben Rama and Buemo and Watkins. But I'm sure there are more notable ones than that. What was wasn't there Sheringham? <sighs> There's a few and I was the all I got was Messi Suarez Neymar, Shearer and Sutton, and uh BMW. You could force them, but I can't really force one out for me. I c I can't. I'm trying to think of of notable striking partnerships, which is quite Dwight York and Andy Cole. Yeah. So I was just Y and C. See why they're scoring so many goals. There you go. Doesn't really work, but it worked. Okay, yeah, it was a nice thought to go down there, but I literally yeah. can't think of anyone. Should have warned you. Sorry. Yeah, no, got nothing. No. no. Mbappe, Messi, and Neymar. Eminem. That's quite cool. It's catchy. So OJ would go on to earn millions of dollars and dozens of endorsements during his playing career. And as such, he heavily indulged in his celebrity lifestyle. He purchased multiple houses across America and multiple houses in LA for his family. He purchased and was gifted multiple sports cars and high-end jewellery. Heard lots of different opinions on his rise to fame, but obviously he's quite a... um from rags to riches tale in terms of the stadium they used to collect uh, uh, seat cushions for. He's now one of their star players. But I've heard a lot of criticism on the fact that the black community felt that he was never really able to give back to that community that he came from and didn't really do much for them yeah, on his well, rise to fame. He, we go on to say he's, he's not black, he's OJ Simpson. He's quite oh, saying that before, so he really kind of... Yeah, he didn't give back to his his community really, and mm-hmm. he, uh, he, as I said, he kind of distanced himself in a weird way. So he, yeah, he he purchased and was gifted multiple sports cars and high end jewelry. He formed sponsorships and endorsements with Chevrolet, Hertz Car Rental, and his his Hertz adverts. They became incredibly popular, but they are quite funny as well. And that gave birth to the slogan "Go OJ Go." Uh, it became synonymous across the country. And actually, as a, as a result of this, and this isn't kind of Ben's interest in facts, but we could do a little condensed one. Hertz's annual profit as a result of OJ appearing in their adverts increased by 50% from his appearance. So he was a household name at this point. That's why I thought Beckham doing something a bit sketchy might, you know, I don't know if he has. He also formed a deal with ABC Television. In fact, sh- should we pop a commercial up for the people? <laughs> we can pop up a commercial for the people. Okay, people. Here you go, people. When you throughout the nation, as hurts the superstar, we got the winning combination. Super people, super cars, making that extra effort to meet your special needs. Getting you in, getting you out with super speed. Hurts the superstar in rent a Superstar in Rent-A-Car. You know it. 
He also formed a deal with ABC Television, filming advertisements for Honey Baked Ham, Calistoga Water Company, Pioneer Chicken, and Dingo Cowboy Boots. See, the cowboy's kind of done full circle. Mm. Like his leg. Too much scalping tickets earlier, isn't it? Yeah. That makes sense for the Cowboys. OJ would earn $1 million per year from his deal with Hertz alone, and he would also be gifted a white Bronco from Hertz. Some more foreshadowing. And Bronco, Cowboys. With his rise to fame, OJ also began an acting career. To date, he has an extensive filmography with a variety of different appearances on film and television. He made very infamous appearances in Naked Gun, Juiced, Roots, Saturday Night Live, but he was so popular that he was also considered for a role alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. However, this ultimately did not go ahead. OJ was described by People magazine as the first black athlete to become a bona fide lovable media star. Overall, OJ's early life was marked by poverty, family instability, violence, crime and health challenges. But he found success and purpose through his athletic abilities. And it is his sporting talents that seemingly turned his life around as he went on to become a professional football player. His childhood is in high contrast to that of his later wife, Nicole. I mean, if it ended there, it's quite a nice story. You know, a kid got with rickets, can wear leg braces and he goes on to, be- to become... Biggest household name in America. Yeah, and it ends at the end of the day, like, fair play to you. Yeah. But sadly, it didn't. You see, yes, we're going to go into the early life of Nicole Brown Simpson now. So Nicole Brown was born on the 19th of May, 1959, in Frankfurt, Germany. She was one of three girls born to Judith Brown and Louis Brown Jr. She had two sisters, Tanya and Denise. Nicole's mother, Judy, was German and her father, Lou, was American. The pair had met whilst Lou was stationed in Frankfurt as a war correspondent during the 1940s. It's quite romantic. Not the war part, but meeting abroad. Fame. Hasn't respect. Respect, Ben. She's just a woman. She's not just abroad. The Brown family would move from Germany to America shortly after Nicole was born, and they would raise their family in various parts of California. Nicole's father, Lou, upon returning to America, became a very wealthy businessman who worked predominantly in the entertainment industry. The biz. The biz. Yeah. And yeah. in there, where where in the world to be for the biz in L.A.? I mean, it's a lot of biz in that that part of the world, right? Show biz. The family received a lot of financial support from Lou's parents and this enabled them to buy a nice house in a very high-income neighbourhood. So yeah, completely the polar opposite to OJ's childhood. Nicole's mother Judy remained a homemaker for the majority of her life. The Brown family were devout Roman Catholics and would attend church every Sunday once they arrived in America. They were a popular family amongst their neighbours and there were no issues to report whatsoever in terms of how well the Brown children were raised. They had a healthy family dynamic, a stable household and extremely loving parents who put their girls before anything else. So yeah, it's just the complete opposite to OJ's upbringing. It's the American dream they live in. It is indeed. And OJ's was more the American... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 to get 20 20, to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Nicole was an extremely bright and intelligent young girl who had aspirations of celebrity from a very early age. She attended high school in Garden Grove, California before moving on to Dana Hills High School in Dana Point. All of the brown girls were very popular in their local schools and communities and all of them were regarded as beautiful girls that were Sean Kingston. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Didn't he do something bad with a um, jet ski? Didn't he hurt someone? Or did he hurt himself? On a jet ski. But he did something bad with a jet ski. I think he nearly died. <laughs> I'll find out. You go on that. Yeah, but all of the brown girls were regarded as beautiful girls that were destined to go far. Nicole herself was a particularly popular student who was known for her beauty and outgoing personality. Sean Kingston crashed his, his jet ski into a bridge. It was nearly fatal. Jesus. Apparently due to inexperience and, in, and inattention. So uh, always concentrate on a jet ski, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I knew it was bad. Mm, it was bad. Yeah. After graduating from high school in 1976, the following year, aged 18, Nicole began working as a waitress at a private nightclub in Beverly Hills known as The Daisy. The club was a known hangout for the rich and famous of LA and the club wouldn't hire anybody that they did not consider aesthetically pleasing. It is alleged that a business associate of Nicole's father enabled her to have a trial at the club and soon after, Nicole decided to take on a full-time role at The Daisy in the hopes of meeting television and film producers. She felt her luck changed considerably on the night that OJ Simpson arrived at The Daisy. The Daisy. We did a weird, while you were in New Zealand, we did a weird nightclub name, didn't we, Dan, in that case we covered? Ragamuffins. Ragamuffins. Ragamuffins nightclub in, um, somewhere in England. Ragamuffins. And we Googled it and it's either a breed of cat or a scruffy child. Mm. A little ragamuffin, yeah. See it raggers. And Dan said... See it muffins. The best place to get pussy. (laughs) Which surprised me. (laughs) Yeah, he shouted it, actually. To get an unruly little kid's... Don't blend those two together. Oh, I thought that's okay. Maybe I misread your face. <laughs> I'm not going to blend her kids either. So, um, yeah. But yeah, the Daisy. It's not that weird, his name, is it? I don't know. I get, I, well, I don't get what they're going for. Things get crazy down at the Daisy. That works. Despite the fact that OJ. You can't be lazy if you're going to work at the Daisy. Yeah. Oh, it's a little bit hazy here in the 
the daisy. They all work. They're all. I'm warming to the club now. The girls are going to amaze me. Down at, what was his name? Oh. Willie Maisie. Drinking down the daisy with <laughs> Willie Maisie. Doing shots with Willie Maisie at the daisy. Foskin shots. What the fuck? It's Willie Maisie. He will amaze you. Take a shot. <laughs> oh dear. He's a very good baseball player, mm. apparently. So despite the fact that OJ arrived at the Daisy not only as a married man, but also a married man whose wife Marguerite was heavily pregnant expecting their third child, he and Nicole immediately hit it off and began an affair together. So Marguerite, his first wife, um, expecting their third child together, heavily pregnant, he's off to the Daisy where he meets Nicole. And he's at this point so wealthy, so famous, that I think he feels pretty much invincible. He can do anything. Yeah, and he, he was such a name at that time. He was, you know, getting women wasn't hard for him to do. He wasn't a particularly nice person to his wife anyway at that point, so having affairs wasn't anything really new, yeah. new to OJ. So he and Nicole immediately hit it off and began an affair together. The pair would go on to date for two years before ultimately OJ and Marguerite would file for divorce. And it is here that Nicole would burst onto the celebrity scene for the first time as OJ's attractive, far younger, new love interest. And, and yeah, I think she was 11, 11 years younger than him. Yeah, he was 29, she was 18, yeah. So yeah, a little bit of a, uh, an age gap there. The pair were considered a very attractive couple and gained a great deal of media attention across Hollywood. At the time, however, there was a great deal of racial conflict across America and there were many people that did not approve of interracial relationships. OJ has cemented himself amongst the upper elite within Hollywood and played golf almost every day at a range of predominantly white golf clubs. Many claim that OJ had forgotten where he had come from and once he gained this celebrity lifestyle. And as I said earlier, OJ has family said, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Therefore, he's orange. And Nicole's brown. Yeah. Well, they all work. Mm. Nicole's life experience to this point had been vastly different to that of OJ. She was very privileged and had an extremely comfortable upbringing in a wealthy family. She was surrounded by security in a loving household with a stable dynamic throughout her life. She had not faced any of the challenges that OJ had faced, and therefore it is alleged that, despite their very mutual attraction to one another, they could not relate their life experiences to one another. Nicole and OJ dated for several years before getting married on the 2nd of February 1985. This marked five years after OJ had officially retired from football and so he was very involved in film and television appearances by this point. It was also the same year that he got inducted to the Hall of Fame. The couple was said to have been extremely passionate and quite volatile throughout their entire relationship. Despite this, the couple went on to have two children together, Sydney and Justin. Sydney. Hey, Sydney. The relationship between OJ and Nicole seemed to deteriorate quite rapidly after the pair got married, and allegations of physical abuse from OJ were apparent almost from the get-go. Nicole had to call the police on several occasions during their marriage, reporting incidents of physical abuse by OJ. He would also be arrested in 1989 for domestic violence against her. However, Nicole often declined to press charges or cooperate with authorities any further, and the couple reconciled after each incident. Some have speculated that she did this in order to maintain her lifestyle and to ensure her children still had OJ in their lives. I mean, the phone calls... Are, They're horrific. Yeah, they are absolutely terrifying. And they sound like, because there's, there's a few I've heard, but they sound like these. Are, she speaks so calmly and casually as if this is a call she makes every other night mm. it's um and the, yeah it's i mean we'll play some of it for you now it's 
911 emergency. Can you get again. someone over here now to 325 Gretna Green? He's back. Please. Well, okay, what does he look like? He's O.J. Simpson. I think you know his record. Could you just send somebody okay. over here? Okay, what is he doing there? He just drove up again. He just <laughs> drove up. over. Okay, wait a minute. What kind of car is he in? He's in a white Bronco, but first of all, he broke the back door down to get in. Okay, oh. wait a minute. What's your name? Nicole Simpson. Okay, is he the sportscaster or whatever? Yeah. Okay. Thank what is, you. Wait a minute. We're sending the police. What is he doing? Is he threatening you? I'm going nuts. Okay. Has he threatened you in any way, or or is he just harassing you? You're gonna hear him in a minute. He's about to come in again. Okay. Just stay on the line. I don't want to stay on the line. He's gonna beat the shit. Wait a minute. Wait. Just stay on the line so we can know what's going on until the police get there. Okay. Okay, Nicole. Uh huh. Just a moment. Does he have any weapons? I don't know. Okay. He went home and now he's back. My okay. kids are up there sleeping and I don't want anything to happen. Okay. Has he hit you today or no? No. Okay. You don't need any paramedics or anything? Uh-uh. Okay. You just want him to Close leave? my door. What does he say? What <sighs> else? Just stay on the line, okay? Is he upset with something that you did? Oh, a long time ago, it always comes back. They're terrified. She goes from being quite calm, and then she gets quite erratic toward the end because she's feeling very threatened. Yeah. I mean, I think it's unfair for people to speculate she did this in order to maintain a lifestyle. I mean, people that are in yeah. abusive relationships that we've covered many a time before. Well, there's also speculation that they had an agreement that his public image, because he had such a good household name mm. and was earning so much money um, for for the family and for himself, that he he didn't want anything to come out to harm his public image, and yeah. they had an agreement that she would never go to the police. Allegedly, the police sometimes had to come to the household and, and then ask for autographs as well. So like, they were like so starstruck because he was such a big deal at that time. People, you know, were in awe of him, and he kind of. Oh, it's OJ. He wouldn't do that kind of thing. Yeah, and, you know, on his side. The juice, juice don't spill. Pardon? Juice don't zap. According to one of many police reports that were filed against OJ, there was an incident reported by Nicole that occurred on New Year's Day in 1989, which stated that OJ shouted, "I don't want that woman sleeping in my bed anymore. I got two women, and I don't want that woman in my bed anymore." The altercation then became extremely physical and OJ assaulted Nicole. Despite OJ pleading no contest to spousal abuse, Nicole opted not to press charges after she was encouraged by her parents, I think predominantly by her father, to make the relationship work and reconcile together. With many believing that this advice was in part due to the fact that OJ had enabled Nicole's father Lou to basically invest a huge amount of money in uh, the, a particularly lucrative Hertz dealership, uh, the, the rental car company, of which OJ had ties to. And basically that meant a sizable and continuous income for the Brown family. So, I mean, as well, they are devout uh, Roman Catholics, right? So you, you make it work regardless. Yeah, which is you know, obviously not healthy in, in itself. But yeah, yeah the obviously investments, I'm sure, would have had a play in that as well. The marriage was rocky to say the least, and despite Nicole's family's pleas, the pair separated in February 1992. 
continued to have a tumultuous relationship despite the separation. It was Nicole that filed for divorce in February of that year due to irreconcilable differences. However, at this time, OJ had recently admitted to having an affair for over a year with Tawny Katane, a famous model and television personality. So many great names in this case. Tawny Katane. Will Mays. <laughs> sounds like you're in a bathtub and you're just putting Willy around in the bubbles, you know, like a little Willy Mays. <laughs> Kind of. About Jay was portly. You've very, done that before. Not a mega maze, no. no. I was going to say, I wouldn't have thought of a maze. Pop what? the bubbles, maybe. Well, Willie Maze, what would you. I would just go back to my Willa Maze on the stage. My Willie Maze, you. Mad. Yeah. Just makes you feel. Very uncomfortable. OJ was reportedly very jealous and highly possessive, and Nicole had begun dating other men, which became something that OJ simply could not stand. Several months after the divorce, Nicole moved out of their shared home, and it is this time that she met Ron Goldman. As Tom mentioned, Nicole um, had had formed a friendship with Ron Goldman, and we're going to talk a little bit about him now, as he seems to be in in some of the documentaries I've watched and some of the podcasts I've listened to. He seems to be very much Mm. an overlooked figure of this case, and he does play a pivotal part. So we're going to talk about him briefly now before going into the timeline. Ronald Lyle Goldman was born on the 2nd of July 1968 in Chicago, Illinois. He had a fairly typical childhood and despite his parents divorcing when he was just six years old, the family remained on amicable terms and his mother and father did everything they could to ensure that Ron and his sister still had a positive upbringing. Ron had aspirations of eventually becoming a child psychologist and while studying at Illinois State University, He worked as a camp counsellor and he also volunteered to support children with cerebral palsy. Ron's mother made the decision to move from Chicago to Southern California when Ron was 18 and he made the decision to put his studies on hold and make the move with his mother. His father and younger sister stayed in Chicago. When he moved to LA, he took up surfing, rollerblading. You need some oil in those wheels, boy. Very rigid. I am actually a sports guy. Good rollerblades. But I don't know if that was good rollerblades. Okay. Beach volleyball. Bleh! Tennis. Ace. And sumo wrestling. Ben. Oh. <laughs> Ignore the sumo wrestling. Keep that. Just want to see what he did and he got me. <laughs> Fuck's sake. So Ron took up all those hobbies that we've just kind of reenacted almost, whilst also fully immersing himself in the LA nightclub scene. He would support himself financially by holding a variety of different jobs, including... Pizza delivery driver. Tip, please. Model. (laughs) (laughs) Tennis instructor. Hit, please. Recruitment headhunter. CV, please. (laughs) I don't know. Civil play. (laughs) And he also held numerous roles as a waiter. Tip, please. (laughs) Ron also had aspirations to become an actor and appeared as a contestant in the television game show Studs. Don't know why I wanted to say Studs. But it studs. Glad in nineteen ninety two. Yeah. In nineteen ninety two, he was regarded as a very good looking young man. Ron met Nicole six weeks before the pair would get murdered. And that's the case. Ron met Nicole six weeks before the crime would uh, go on to occur. The two became increasingly friendly with one another, meeting regularly for coffee and dinner in the weeks before their deaths. Opinions are divided on whether their relationships became intimate or not. According to friends, the relationship between the two were platonic. According to many outsiders and OJ's family members, it was a relationship of a sexual nature. One article noted that he had borrowed Nicole's Ferrari on a regular basis. And when he met his friend Craig Clark for lunch, parking up in Nicole's Ferrari, Clark said that Ron told him that it was Nicole's car, but that he had refused to say that it was his girlfriend. Instead, Goldman said they were just really good friends. It'd be quite cool to have just like a celebrity friend that lends you their Ferrari. 
And are we dating? Are we not dating? Doesn't matter. I'm driving your car. Is she sl- she's a celeb for, well, I guess in, 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 in the current car, climate of today, you can be a Kardashian and be just a celeb for being a celeb. Oh, yeah, that's true. Which Kardashian is. Or just, or just befriending someone very wealthy that's got a spare Ferrari just to let you drive about in and go for coffee with and fancy dinners, fancy lunches. That just seems quite shallow and quite... I don't mind. If there's any rich, wealthy people that want to go for coffee with me, let me drive you. Let me put it in fourth gear in your Ferrari. Are they, they're mostly automatic, aren't they? Sports cars. I'll learn. I am actually a sports guy. Don't let him drive your car. <laughs> it is not known whether OJ had met Ron previously. However, it is speculated that OJ was very aware of him. OJ maintained an oversight of Nicole and her social life. And according to author Sheila Weller on OJ and Nicole's relationship after the breakup... She said, they were a dramatic, fractious, mutually obsessed couple before they married, after they married, after they divorced in 1992, and after they reconciled. So as well, the thing to mention is OJ would essentially be stalking her a lot of the time and, and always turn up at the house, let himself in, break into the house. It seemed like Nicole lived the life of just kind of constantly being on edge, yeah. worrying what he was going to do. As we mentioned before, he's been physically abusive to her previously, and it was very much seemed to be, if I can't have you, even though OJ, it's fine for OJ to go and have a load of affairs and everything yeah. like that and, ha- and move on with a new partner, but the thought of her doing it was he just couldn't deal with that. And it's because she broke up with him as well. It wasn't a case of him leaving her. I think that made him even more obsessed and more controlling and wanted to control the situation. Yeah, in all the cases we've covered, rejection is never taken well. No. So one of Nicole's sisters, Tanya, said that in the weeks before we go into our timeline, and according to one of Nicole's best friends, Chris Jenner, Nicole said, he's going to kill me and he's going to get away with it. And it is here that we move into the OJ Simpson timeline. 12th of June 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson attends a family dinner at Mezzaluna Restaurant after watching her daughter perform in a dance recital. Mezzaluna was a popular restaurant within the Brentwood area. At the restaurant was a waiter and Nicole's friend Ron Goldman. Rumours have since circulated that the two were engaged in a romantic relationship, although this is speculation. After having dinner, the family leave the restaurant at 8pm. On the way home, Nicole's mother realises she has left her glasses at the restaurant. Nicole's sister calls the restaurant and tells them of the situation at around 9.15. Ron Goldman tells Nicole's sister that he'll drop the glasses off after he finishes his shift at work. OJ has also attended his daughter's dance recital hours earlier. He has had a hectic few days of travelling but is back in LA at his house, which is only a few blocks away from his ex-wife. He and Brian cater Kalen, who basically is a guest staying at OJ's house in an outdoor like flat bungalow on the... On oh, the, he's like a bungalow, I think. Yeah, on the, on the, on, on the uh, residence and basically he's been staying there for about five months. He's an aspiring actor. I'm not sure exactly why he ended up in OJ's. Like I said, if, you know, you befriend someone that's wealthy and just go for a drive in the Ferrari, maybe, you know, he befriended OJ and got a bungalow on the terrace. On the, yeah, sure. He could, you know, can't rule it out. They decide to head to McDonald's for dinner between 9 and 9.30. They return to OJ's mansion at 9.45pm. At 10.25pm, OJ's driver arrives outside the house in a limousine. OJ is scheduled to make a flight to Chicago. The driver knocks the door and waits for OJ, but he does not answer the door. The driver calls his manager and tells him that OJ does not seem to be in. The driver is told to wait outside until 11.15pm. This is because OJ is known for his lateness. At roughly 10.45pm, Brian Kalin hears three thumping sounds from the outside of his wall and goes outside to check the noise. So roughly around the same time as this, Nicole's neighbour becomes concerned when Nicole's dog is barking and wandering around looking for help with blood on its paws. That's quite uh, scary, isn't it? Although that kind of sounds like quite a um, yeah, striking sight, apparently it wasn't too uh, alien for the dog to have blood on the paw. I think it had 
walked on broken glass before or something like that so it wasn't too immediately like thinking of the darkest things possible at that stage but yeah it's quite a, a sad a sad thought just before 11 p.m alan park the limousine driver sees a person who matches oj's description walk across the driveway towards simpson's house at around 11 p.m oj finally leaves his residence he tells the driver that he has just woken up from a nap and has taken a shower which conflicts with his later alibi Alan Park then takes OJ to Los Angeles International Airport. OJ narrowly makes his flight, and at 11.45pm, he is in the air on the way to Chicago. Do you know what uh, Mr. Driver's uh, middle name was? Alan Park. It's parallel. Good name for driver, actually, as well, yeah. Mm. Yeah, Alan Parallel Park. Noticing that the dog is still barking and has not returned... He's busy parking. Noticing that... Parking at the wrong tree. Okay, that's a bit better, but still. Noticing that the dog is still barking and has not returned to its owner, the neighbours follow the dog back to Nicole's house, where she is found stabbed to death alongside Ron Goldman at 12.10am on the morning of the 13th of June, 1994. This scene itself, we'll talk about it in a bit more detail, but the, the crime scene photos of this are absolutely horrendous. It's not just a murder, it's an absolute brutalisation of these two people. Nicole and Ron had been stabbed multiple times. Both of their necks were slit. Nicole was found on the external stairs leading up to her house in the fetal position. Ron was found in the bushes surrounding Nicole's house. Next to his body was a hat an envelope containing Nicole's mother's glasses and a leather glove, notably just one leather glove at this time. A warm bath was found and candles were still burning inside the house. Nicole and OJ's children slept upstairs whilst their mother was brutally murdered. At 4.15am, OJ Simpson checks into his hotel in Chicago. Back in Brentwood, 15 minutes later, the police go to the Simpson household to inform him that his ex-wife has been killed. When the police arrive at the house, they do not follow protocol, spotting that there's a bloody fingerprint on the Simpsons' white bronco, they enter the premises. So you're only allowed to enter premises without a warrant if you believe that there's something um, untoward going on. The police are saying that because they've seen the blood there, they worried about his safety, thinking you know maybe someone came after him as well. Simpsons lawyers would dispute that and say they entered, they entered unlawfully. So the police entered the property. Uh, there were lights on in the property, so it was unclear if OJ was in or not. Without a search warrant, police detective Mark Fuhrman jumps over the fence of the Rockingham mansion at roughly 5.40am. In doing so, Mark awakens OJ's daughter, Arnell. She is also residing in the guest house at the property. Arnell takes detectives into the house and decides to call her father's assistant, Kathy Rander. Walking along a leaf-covered path, Mark finds a bloody glove matching the one found next to Ron Goldman's body. The property is officially declared a crime scene by Detective Philip Vanetta at 7am. It is not until 10.45am that the police obtain a search warrant. This is when investigators conduct a full search of the property and OJ's car. OJ is making his way back to LA after receiving a call from police informing him of Nicole's death. It's been said that OJ received the news of his ex-wife's passing. He did not ask how she died, which many have noted as suspicious. Yeah, I mean, if you get a call saying your ex-wife's been killed, you're going to question it yeah, especially the police yeah. are calling you but yeah it's a, bit, it is a very odd behavior to not even not even wonder that and with the with the timeline that we've just kind of laid out it would have roughly from oj being late to get into the limousine to get to the airport to get from la to chicago the timeline we've just laid out it would have given whoever committed this murder at the time though we both believe it was oj roughly an hour free time to have conducted this so the the the, the timeline is a bit sketchy on oj as well before he then headed to uh to uh chicago so OJ arrives at his house at 12pm. As soon as he arrives at the scene, he is handcuffed despite not being officially declared a suspect at the time. When OJ is at the police station, he's interviewed. In addition to this, he provides some DNA samples. He then returns home. So as we said with this, there's a lot of, um, at the time, a lot of racial unrest 
and um, people believed that him being handcuffed was a sign of prejudice from the police mm-hmm. uh, uh, because OJ was black and the police obviously would go on to deny that but they're saying that in other cases even with Jeffrey Dahmer he was able to walk freely without any handcuffs on when yeah, they yeah. knew he was de- definitely guilty so it's a bit odd that they would handcuff OJ when he wasn't even declared as a suspect and this interview that they conduct with OJ once they get him to the station there's audio of this he seems quite calm Mm. but he he can't get his story straight from the off so we'll play some of the audio of that for you now OJ was that sort of a problem Mm -hmm. we've got uh, some blood on and in your car we've got some blood at your house and uh, sort of a problem well we we like to do that uh we've got of course a cut on your finger that mm-hmm. you don't aren't really clear on uh you, be as clear as I am. Okay. Yeah. you recall having that cut on your finger the last time you were at the coal's house a week ago yeah no oh, so it's been since yeah since last night okay somewhere, somewhere yeah. last night you got yeah. huh. somewhere after the uh, recital Somewhere when I was rushing to get out of my house. Okay, yeah. after the yeah. after the uh, yeah. recital. Yeah. What do you think happened? You have I idea? have no idea. Man. You, I, you, you guys haven't calls? told me anything. I, I have no idea what happened when you said to my daughter said something to me today that somebody else might have been involved. I have absolutely no idea what what happened. I don't know how, why, or what. You guys haven't told me anything. Every time I ask you guys, you're going to tell me in a bit. Well, we don't. We don't know uh, a lot of the answers to those questions yet ourselves, O.J., okay? Uh, I got a bunch of guns. I got guns all over the place. You know, um, you can take them. They're, they're all there. I mean, you can see them. I keep them in my car for an incident that happened a month ago that my in-laws, my wife, and everybody knows about. On the 15th of June 1994, on this day, Robert Shapiro, who's a long-term friend of OJ, becomes OJ's attorney. On the 16th of June 1994, funerals are held for Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. Nicole's children and the rest of her family are in attendance, as well as OJ Simpson. Multiple people in attendance at the funeral, including her own mother, reported seeing OJ kiss his ex-wife on the lips and allegedly whispering an apology to her. So apparently he says, I'm so sorry, Nicole. OJ is set for arraignment at this time. This is the court hearing where the suspect declares whether they are pleading guilty or not guilty. I wonder if in nowadays, if they'll be allowed to go, if you are even thought as a suspect to the funeral, it seems a bit, yeah. I mean, as well, like him saying, I'm sorry, if you were, you know, thinking that he's innocent, he could be sorry because he wasn't there to help save her when you put your he's guilty hat on it's kind of it does come across very badly 17th of june 1994 it had been agreed that oj would hand himself over to the police at, at by 11 a.m however there was no sight of him by noon oj had told robert shapiro that he had wished to take a shower and say farewell to his family before he handed himself in he then said he would hand himself over once he had left his good friend robert kardashian's house so that is robert kardashian as in kim kardashian's father knowing this information when oj does not arrive by noon the police make their way to the kardashian's house and oj is not there at this point, OJ is officially declared as a fugitive. At 2pm, there's a public press conference held in the hopes that OJ will surrender. By 5pm, there's still no sightings of him. And as a result, Robert Kardashian reads what has now been labelled as a suicide note from OJ. The letter starts, First, everyone understand I have nothing to do with Nicole's murder. I loved her. I always have and I always will. If we had a problem, it's because I loved her so much. 
It ends with, don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. Thanks for making my life special. I hope it helped with yours. Peace and love, OJ. Which does sound like very much like goodbye. I don't necessarily think these are the actions of an innocent person. No. You'd stay and fight your cause. You'd certainly stay and want to find out who did this to your, to your wife. Even if it's your ex-wife, who did it to the mother of your children? Yeah, by this point, you should say, why didn't he ask any questions about when he got the phone call about, about what happened? Why has he run away from the, the police at this point? Why, why isn't he looking or trying to help with the actual... Mm-hmm help with the search so whilst everyone is kind of searching uh, for oj's whereabouts there are numerous calls to 911 and one particular call is a gentleman that's on a highway and claims to have seen oj in the back of a white bronco more and more calls filter in and eventually the police are able to trace down this white bronco and they begin to follow it and at 5 51 p.m oj calls 911 he has a gun to his head he and al cowlings are sitting in al's ford bronco And there's quite an infamous phone call made by Al to the police to initially make them aware of the situation. So we'll play that for you now. 911, what are you reporting? This is is AC. I have OJ in the car. Okay, where are you? Please, I'm coming up the five freeway. Okay. Right now, we we are okay, but you got to tell the police to just back off. He's still alive, but he got a gun to his head. Okay, hold on a minute. Monica? He just want to see his mother. Let me get him to the house. Okay, hold on a moment. Okay, where are you? Is everything else okay? Everything right now is okay, officer. Everything is okay. All about he wants me to give it to his mom. He wants me to give it to his daughter. Okay. So that's all I that's all we have. He got a gun in his head. Okay, and what what's your name? My name is AC. You know who I am, god damn it. Okay. Alrighty, sir, hold on just a moment. At five fifty six PM, OJ starts the low speed car chase. Al drives the car whilst OJ is on the phone with operators telling them, I want to go with Nicole. That's all I want to do. That's all I've been trying to do. And yeah, again, this this call is completely available online. It's, it's it, yeah, it's really strange because he's running away. He's asking for the police to back up and give him space. But these are not the actions of an innocent man. Mm. Uh, so again, we'll, we'll play this interaction for you now. Detective Tom Lang had Simpson's cell phone number and amazingly was able to reach him. Dateline has obtained the actual recording of that conversation, which was not released at the time. Yeah, just let me get to my house. Okay, we're going to do that. I swear to you, I'll give you what I'll give you me, I'll give you my whole body. As OJ's location is traced, fans from around the world watch as their beloved star turns into a wanted criminal. News outlets follow him on the ground and in the air. Domino's Pizza had a record selling day with people staying at home and watching this chase happen. So, interesting little pizza uh news for you a piece of news yeah chloe wrote that in there yeah the news exacerbates to the point that the even the nba finals are disrupted an estimated 95 million people watch the events unravel fans gather along the freeways cheering on his escape with signs such as the juice is loose and go oj go Al also calls 911, letting them know of the situation. He tells the operator, he's still alive, but he has a gun to his head. He just wants to see his mother. Let me get him to his house. After driving around for approximately two hours, OJ and Al arrive at OJ's house just before 8pm. OJ waits inside the car for just under an hour before he surrenders. He is arrested and taken to prison without bail. Simpson was actually a Ford spokesman at the time of the chase, and on this day, his role was redacted. 
On the 22nd of July 1994, at a hearing, Simpson pleads absolutely 100% not guilty to the murders. The 9th of September 1994, the prosecution asks for life without parole to be placed upon Simpson if he is found not guilty and not the death penalty. 3rd of November 1994, the jury is selected. The jury selection played a pivotal role in this case. LA was still repairing from the race riots of 1992, sparked by the police brutality inflicted on Rodney King on the 3rd of March in 1991. So Rodney was an African-American struck 56 times by four white police officers as they beat and kicked him to the ground. Video footage was not common during this time, but one onlooker filmed the incident and gave the footage to a local news station. In April of 1992, race riots were sparked over LA. A predominantly white jury acquitted the policemen of their violent actions towards Rodney King. The race riots left nearly 60 dead and the city was left in chaos and infrastructures destroyed. People have heavily distrusted the LAPD and believe and arguably still believe that they are a corrupt force. The jury in the O.J. Simpson case were made up of four men and eight women with eight black, one Hispanic, one white, and two persons with a mixed ethnic background. The prosecution felt that this mixture of people and the jury would mean O.J. would be acquitted as they wanted retribution for the outcome of the Rodney King case. So as Tom mentioned, the L.A. riots of 92 played a huge part in people's distrust in the L.A. police and uh, the massive widespread belief that there was a great deal of corruption at multi-level. The fact that they'd found these police officers innocent for the brutality that they inflicted on Rodney King was was outrageous to almost all, all of the general public. OJ's defence were hoping for as many black women to be um, in the jury as possible because they felt that that was their best chance of getting OJ um, off of this potential life sentence. Yeah, they'd done focus groups, hadn't they? And they'd seen that they were the most sympathetic to OJ. The defence for OJ were very, very happy when they when they saw this jury. They felt that they had a great chance of getting him off the life sentence. And in fact, OJ turned to his defence on noticing this jury and seeing the jury selection and said, if this jury finds me guilty, I must have done it. Which is, again, a, a bizarre thing to say. Yeah. On the 18th of January 1995, Johnny Cochran now becomes O.J. Simpson's lead counsel and he is a larger-than-life character. Very fascinating guy. On this day, the judge also allows the jury to hear about O.J.'s domestic abuse allegations. O.J. had an alleged history of being physically violent with Nicole, as we mentioned earlier in the episode. In her diary, she wrote that he would beat her for hours. And obviously we played some of the audio of the 911 clips as well. It's absolutely horrendous. On one particular occasion of the 1st of January 1989, Nicole called the police to her and OJ's house. She told the two police officers that arrived at the scene that he's going to kill me and she had visible choke marks around her neck. She also had a cut lip and a black eye. Nicole was furious when police arrived at the scene. She had called 911 eight times before this incident with domestic abuse allegations. OJ was also furious when the police arrived outside his house. He told them, The police have been out here eight times before, and now you're going to arrest me for this? This is a family matter. Why do you want to make a big deal out of it when we can handle it? Just goes to show how deluded he is. Absolutely. OJ was arrested on this occasion and charged with spousal abuse. He paid a fine and sought counselling through a therapist of his choosing. It was recommended by the judge that OJ spent 30 days in prison. It was also suggested that he completed a year-long course for men who committed domestic violence. However, no such thing happened. The judge recommended this. Yeah. I recommend you go to prison for a bit and then you do this. It's like, well, maybe don't recommend it. Maybe we force that he does that. <laughs> Absolutely. Nicole complained of being stalked after her and OJ's divorce in 1992. Allegedly, he would turn up whilst she was on dates or at her house and watch as she had intimate moments with other men, which is just hmm. beyond creepy and horrible. 
In addition to this, five days before Nicole's murder, a woman matching her description asked for guidance at a woman's shelter in Santa Monica. The woman was seeking help for an ex-husband who was stalking her. 24th of January 1995, the prosecution begins proceedings with their opening statements. Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden argue that O.J. Simpson put on a public persona hiding his real personality of a batterer, a wife-beater, an abuser, a controller. Christopher Darden also added that the night of Nicole and O.J.'s daughter's dance recital, O.J. sat behind the Browns for a few moments, but then he got up and he grabbed a chair and dragged it to a corner of the auditorium, turned the chair around and he sat in it, and he sat there facing Nicole and just stared at her. That's creepy. And you've got an audience for doing that. You shouldn't do it without an audience, but that is... Very creepy. Yeah, it's just another thing. He just thinks he can get away with and people don't realise it. 25th of January 1995, Defence delivers its opening statements. They claim that the LAPD was a corrupt force and that their incompetence and plantation of evidence at the Simpsons residence led to his arrest. So this is where they speculate, as Tom said, you need a warrant or, or reasonable belief that someone is in danger. But that officer that first arrived allowed everyone in straight away. The Defence alleged that during this time they planted the glove, they messed with evidence... And they didn't secure the scene. Well, they yeah. certainly didn't secure the scene. And that would very much help influence the jury as the case went on. On the 13th of March 1995, Mark Furman takes the stand. He denies all theories that he tampered with evidence and placed the glove at the crime scene. He also denies being racist. On the 4th of April 1995, Dennis Fung, a criminologist, admits that protocols were broken at the crime scene. It has come to light that many standard procedures were not followed during the handling of evidence, but some have argued that this was out of incompetence rather than a deliberate act against OJ. For example, a trainee was on the case. This trainee failed to change their gloves each time when handling a different DNA sample, which meant that the DNA fibres may have been transferred to other samples. Plus, some samples were placed together in the same bags, which could have caused cross-contamination. So this was one of the first big trials that even included DNA evidence, and there's already a lot of scepticism around that by the, by the way in which they handled the scene. In addition to this, the lead detectives within the case had access to the lab where OJ's blood samples were held. This really helped to provide weight for the defence's police corruption argument. Philip Van Atta was given an envelope containing Simpson's blood, which he should have reported immediately. He had the opportunity to do so at two locations nearby. However, he decided to drive to Dennis Fung, who was at Simpson's property, and held onto the samples for numerous hours before handing them over. Plus, it was reported that 8mm of blood was drawn from OJ, yet only 6.5mm was recorded by the LAPD. So this kind of, they use this uh, this example to state that maybe they were planting some of his blood mm. at the scene. And obviously, if only 65 was recorded, where's the other 1.5 gone? They could have used that to argue that perhaps they planted it at the scene. On the 10th of May 1995, DNA evidence is presented in court. Dennis Fung, the criminologist mentioned earlier, actually collected a pair of bloody socks found in OJ's bedroom on the 13th of June 1994. Yet when he took them in for DNA testing, he did not note there was any visible blood in them. In fact, on the 29th of June, the socks were tested again and the lab notes conclude blood search non-obvious. That was the other thing in the audio we played for you earlier of OJ first being interrogated. The police noticed quite a large cut on his hand and they ask him about how he did it and his story changes a few times to say oh I smashed it on a glass, oh it was an old cut that I reopened, I cut myself all the time by playing golf. I'm like fucking time for golf or cuts themselves and how? I mean I'm sure there'll be examples. Can get pretty rough. 
Furthermore, an analysis of the socks conducted that EDTA was found on the bloody socks. EDTA is a chemical used to stop blood coagulation and is used by labs to keep blood fresh. However, it's important to mention that EDTA can be found in very small quantities in food and can be found in a McDonald's Big Mac, which OJ had eaten in the night of the murders. Big Mac is that? Yeah, I was hungry for a second and then I thought about the bloody socks. And now I'm not hungry anymore. Little ketchup bags. It was disputed during the trial that the amount present in the blood was too high to be found naturally within the human bloodstream, and this does lead many to theorise that the evidence was planted. At the crime scene, most of the blood found, due to the horrific nature of the attacks, came from Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. Yet three droplets of blood found on the gate and five droplets of blood found on Bundy Drive may have come from OJ. Bundy Drive is just outside of the property. The blood droplets found on the gate have widely been contested. These blood samples were not collected until the 3rd of July 1994, nearly three weeks after the murders. The defence speculated that this was because they had been planted by the LAPD, as a photo taken a day after the murders showed no blood stains in the area where the samples were collected from. Which is, yeah, that's very peculiar. The defence asked, Where is it, Mr Fung? when showing the courtroom the photograph with no bloodstains. Moreover, the blood collected three weeks after the murders were in a better condition than that taken the day after the murders. Realistically, this should not have been the case as the blood had allegedly been the subject of weather conditions for three weeks since its collection. EDTA was also found in these samples. The white bronco that we talked about earlier was also tested twice. A DNA profile of mostly OJ was found, yet DNA from Nicole, Ron and a second unknown person was also found within the vehicle. So this was a different white bronco to the one that OJ had been on the run-in and the police helicopters following. This was actually his personal one. So third DNA sample from an unknown person was not that of Al, who was in the car, the other bronco with him. A forensic expert testified that the cuts that OJ sustained at some point during the night would have been enough for his blood to have been found on his car and at his house. The defence also argued that Mark Furman may have accidentally transferred evidence as he made his way from the crime to the car. At the crime scene, he had stood in a pool of Nicole's blood, which meant he would have transferred her blood into the carpet of the Bronco. What, what kind of police officer would do that? It's mm. very bizarre. Very, very... If it is accidental, it's... I mean, this is like, you know, when you, some of the cases we've covered before, you think they don't know any better. It's 1995. Yeah. 1904. It's, 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 surely that time is enough to know you can't go walking around stepping in blood. and. Yeah. DNA testing on the glove found at OJ's property showed Nicole and Ron's DNA. In addition to this, the glove found at the crime scene was tested and showed DNA samples consistent with Nicole and Ron as well as OJ. Yeah, it's important to note that OJ's blood profile was consistent with around 170 million people. So it's not that he didn't do it, but a lot of other people could have done it as well. One piece of damning evidence was that a Bruno Magli size 12 bloody footprint was found at the scene of the crime. Not only was Simpson a size 12, but he also did own a pair of these shoes. I've never even heard of Bruno Magli shoes. But, Let's have a look. Are they nice? What's your money on? No. Yes. I mean, the first one that comes up is Bruno Magli's shoes, OJ. It's Ooh. like the biggest search. They are not nice. Oh. Who had no and who had yes? I had no. Don't have big yes. They look like sort of the smart shoes a magician might wear. They look pretty basic to me. I didn't say a good musician. Mm. Or a good mu magician either. <laughs> Do you like them? I mean, I don't know which ones you, you're looking at. Oh, I just Googled them. Just like the brown ones and the black ones. And... There's some blue ones I'm looking at. Oh. Um, yeah, they look very basic. They're not really... They're very shrug-worthy, I'd say. 
So not only was Simpson a size 12, but he also did own a pair of these shoes. And it would not be until after the criminal case that photographs of him wearing these exact shoes would be recovered. I can see why the the, um, the jury and the black community would think that the police could be manipulating the situation here and manipulating the crime scene. And Definitely. It's quite, they're doing a very good job here painting you know the doubt in the minds of these people. But there is an awful lot of things that point directly to OJ and being like, this yeah. is just too much of a coincidence. Yeah, your story keeps changing. You have a, a violent... Uh, list of historic actions against this person. You ran away mm. when you said you were going to come and see slowly us. Slowly driven away. Yeah, as well. Yeah. Slow. Your DNA and blood was potentially found at the scene. It's and, and now your shoes. Your little glove. And your little glove, yeah. So one of the first things Johnny Cochran said when recalling this trial is that they were going to go straight. It was the perfect case to go for police integrity mm. because there were so tensions were so high at the time. Potentially, as you said, they viewed this as a way to kind of right the wrong of the outcome yeah, definitely. Of the King and like you know, the, the the black community saw O.J. Simpson, you know, such a famous guy, such a, such a success story, mm-hmm. and and the the jurors, the eight jurors, would have been they would have probably known a lot of people involved in the riots or people you know heavily who you know, have been um, persecuted by the police before wrongfully. Yeah. So. Yeah. They could easily, you know, listen to these stories and, and feel emotionally attached to it. And you know, Definitely. So, uh, yeah. On the 15th of June, 1995, so arguably the biggest day of the whole uh, trial takes place. It's a place. pivotal moment here. It's, it's, it's completely pivotal. So the most infamous moment of the trial uh, occurs here. O.J. Simpson tries on the glove that was found at his property by Mark Furman. So Marsha Clark of the prosecution basically came out and said she absolutely didn't want OJ to try on these gloves as evidence. She had a really bad feeling about it. However, uh, another member of the prosecution was adamant that this would be kind of a a home run in terms of um, Mm -hmm. uh, getting him to be proven guilty. During this touchdown. A touch, yeah, it's much more, yeah. He wasn't a batterer. He played football. No, that don't. Batterer. During this pivotal part of the trial, OJ claims that the glove is too tight as he cannot get it over his knuckles. As he struggles to put on the glove, he turns to the jury and tells them simply, too tight. Although this may look like this supports claims that the evidence must have been placed there by Detective Mark Furman, there is a list of valid reasons as to why the glove may have no longer fit. As well as trying to place a leather glove over his knuckles, OJ also had a latex glove on at the same time to avoid cross-contamination. I mean, latex gloves are very thin. Very, very thin. And also now they're worried about cross-contamination when it really slipped their mind. Furthermore, the glove had been frozen and unfrozen several times for DNA preservation. According to experts, this could have caused the glove to shrink. In addition to this, OJ had not been taking his arthritis medication. This ultimately would have increased the size of his hands, making the gloves too small. Yeah, the inflammation from the arthritis would have made his hands bigger there. So yeah, it is a lot of things there. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm no glove expert, but I... no. <laughs> I think Ben, I think you, glove expert. Do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You always be hands and things. Yeah, but for me, that yeah. I I've never thought about this aspect of it, but yeah, you could argue why it didn't fit. But yeah, I mean, for the defence, they were absolutely buzzing uh, at this moment. It's such a strikingly visual moment where... Mm. Too tight. But I think a lot of people would have based their whole entire opinion of this case around this moment. Mm. It was a a game changer, according to my dad, who watched it live. The glove bit was a game changer. I was talking about the trial. We weren't just talking about gloves because we liked it. I'm a glove guy. 
29th of August 1995. Evidence is presented that shows Mark Furman lied under oath. The jury hears tape recordings of him using racial slurs over 40 times during these recordings, something he had previously testified he had never done. Laura Hart McKinney, a scriptwriter, was creating a project centred around women within the police force. She interviewed Mark Furman for 13 hours and during these interviews he bragged about police brutality and planting evidence, which is just... But he, he went on to say he was... Playing out to the camera. Playing out to the camera. It was a scriptwriter and it was for a project centred around... Like, so he was, it feels like he was set up a bit. He said, yeah, it was, he was indulging in it and he was, play, he was playing the character is what he said, but I mean, mm. yeah. He also noted that he was a prominent member of the MAW, or Men Against Women, a group which opposed women within the police force and would lead to sexual assault or discrimination against women. Furman commented, you've got to be able to shoot people, beat people beyond recognition and go home and hug your little kids. Women don't pack those qualities. Although Furman would later say that there was never a shred, never a hint, never a possibility, not a remote, not a million, not a billion to one possibility, I could have planted anything, nor would I have a reason to. People found it hard to believe this after he pleaded the Fifth Amendment when asked if he had planted evidence during the OJ case. I think every single question they asked him when he did take the stand, he just said, I'd like to plead my fifth. Yeah, because, I mean, once this, once it came out of his, with his um, racist past, essentially, that's when he started shutting up. So, yeah. But it's fishy that you then been asked to be part of the... It's like, surely you just say no. That's the one question where you say no, never. Yeah. So that was, uh, again, an equally huge moment uh, as well. Another as touchdown for the defenceman. Yeah, I mean, they couldn't believe their luck. They were two up. Mm. Right, is that... How they score? No. No. But they were up quite a bit. I am actually a sports guy. Yeah, so no one could really believe that he, he pled the fifth to those questions. I think even when he was asked if he was a racist, he pled the fifth, which, again, to a predominantly black jury, doesn't look good. Pleading the Fifth Amendment equates to not answering for fear that you will be incriminated for your answer. So, yeah, it's just it's a very strange situation with him taking the stand. 28th of September 1995, the defence presents its closing statements. The famous line, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, is delivered by Johnny Cochran. 3rd of October 1995, after four hours of deliberation, OJ is found not guilty of the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman. Yes, I mean, from obviously, if you, if you aren't familiar with the case and you've just listened to or everything we said and speculated then, you can kind of see why, where the doubt has been placed into the jurors' minds. The glove thing, I can see why they got wrapped up in that. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, and and the things coming out of about him, yeah, it definitely makes him uh, not credible. And also, you can see why he'd be the kind of person that would plant evidence. Mm-hmm. I think from from the start, all of when he was first arrested, when he went on the run, everybody believed, oh, it's a, it's a cut and dry trial. He's guilty. Yeah. You know, no way would he act like this. I don't think the prosecution viewed any chance that they would lose this case until the glove moment and mm. until Furman. The trial went on for 11 months and the jury had made up their minds in four hours. And one of the podcasts I listened to had a, a, a member of the jury on there and he suggested that 11 months of being in that jury and watching the trial every day, mm. not being able to see your family, being put up in a hotel, you can't listen to the radio, can't watch TV. They just wanted it to be over. Yeah. 
And it had gone on for so long that even though these two big moments we've talked about, the glove and uh, the Furman, Detective Furman, they'd by this point, the jury had forgotten about all the DNA evidence and the blood that the prosecution had, had trial, put forward. Yeah, yeah. So they just, you know, I think initially it was, it, they didn't have the majority. I think it was two people that still said guilty. And then they went on for another couple of hours and then they had a unanimous verdict. So... Yeah, 11 months. Yeah, as Ben mentioned, they're not having access because obviously you can't be swayed by other things you're hearing. So not having access to TV, radio, phone calls. It's, it's like within that, it's torture. You can completely imagine them wanting to, yeah, just to go get home. out of there. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, th- there was a very mixed reaction to OJ being found not guilty of the murders. Obviously, there were people that were very, very elated and happy uh, at the fact that OJ had been found not guilty. There were also a lot of people that were very angry, very upset, distraught at the fact that he'd somehow, in their belief, gotten away with the murders of Nicole and Ron. So what we're going to do is go into the aftermath of the trial. So although OJ wasn't convicted of the murder back in 1995, many have since speculated that a 1997 civil court case allowed for retribution. In 1996, the family of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman sued OJ Simpson for wrongful death. Photos of OJ wearing the Bruno Mangley shoes were presented as evidence in court, which again hadn't made it into the first trial. The families won, and as a result, OJ was ordered to pay $33.5 million in damages for both families. Like we said with the, um, the Bar- Ken and Barbie um, case, how things can crop up and then they go, oh, well, we've already said this now, so yeah. we can't change it. It's like, if you're then saying he has to pay that money for the wrongful deaths, yeah. <laughs> you're literally saying, oh, yeah, he's guilty. He's done it, so therefore you have to do that. Yeah. Insane. And the Goldman family as well, I know we've, we've not really talked about them very much, but the way that the police informed the Goldmans that Ron had been killed was literally, they called the father of Ron and said, have you seen the news about Nicole Simpson? Your son was the other victim. That's it. It's just like an afterthought. Mm. So yeah, really, really horrible. The murder weapon believed to have been used to kill Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman is still missing. A popular theory is that Robert Kardashian disposed of the murder weapon as well as OJ's bloody clothing after the murders. However, that is just speculation. There's also an individual that claims to have seen OJ at the airport arriving by limo, getting out a a sort of a gym bag, a zipper bag, and disposing some items from that bag into a bit. It was quite sneakily, wasn't it? It didn't open up very wide. Yeah, Yeah, which... If that is the case, yeah, that does yeah, alarm bells. In 2016, the LAPD confirmed that after receiving a knife found at OJ's property from a retired police officer, they were conducting an analysis. Yet testing found the knife to not be the murder weapon. In 2006, a shocking interview was made of OJ Simpson and journalist Judith Regan as they near the launch of his book, If I Did It. The interview was ultimately never broadcast on television, but the book was still released. So recently, clips of the interview were shown on Fox as a panel who were involved in the case aired their opinions on the murder. During the interview, OJ makes some absurd comments such as still being angry at Nicole, and he even gives a hypothetical account of his version of the events of that night. Nicole and Ron were stabbed to death. So this book launch, um, if I did it, which is obviously a very weird thing for OJ Simpson to to, uh, write with a ghostwriter, which you can only think, why would you put a book out there saying if you did do it hypothetically? Like, you know, that's odd. The book would go on to change hands, wouldn't it, Ben? Yeah, so basically in OJ having to pay out this huge sum of money to the victim's families, um, a a Florida bankruptcy court basically awarded the rights to the book to the Goldman family to basically partially satisfy the court. So they would release this book and quite cleverly, um, so they wouldn't break any laws with it. On the cover it says, I did it. But if you look very closely at the eye, it's got 
if really small yeah. written in the eye so it's, it's like a colorblind test yeah it's it's quite a well an amusing way that they kind of re, respun the book there but an odd thing to do i mean saying that you're you know you're still angry at the person who is who's murdered and then releasing the book saying that it's just a very weird behavior yeah and simpson's former manager actually told the huffington post that the book was written by a ghostwriter without simpson's involvement however simpson had accepted a deal against uh, pardo's advice which gave him six hundred thousand dollars so oj also gives his version of events regarding the stalking allegations he said that one night he saw nicole on a date and he approached her engaged in a conversation with her after a few hours he then made his way to her house and saw her inside with a man and he continued to walk to her door he then banged on the door and then left her and the man alone yet he returned the next morning to confront her OJ gives his version of the night's events prefacing the whole segment as hypothetical. He says that his friend named Charlie drove to Nicole's house. OJ had a knife in his car and Charlie takes this knife from under the seat. They then make their way to Nicole's house and after entering through the back gate, there is a fight between OJ and Ron. OJ then comments, I remember, I grabbed the knife, I do remember that portion, taking the knife from Charlie, and to be honest, after that, I don't remember, except I'm standing there, and there's all kind of stuff around. He then says, I hate to say it, but this is hypothetical, I'm sorry, I know we have to back off again, it's hard, this is hard to make people think I'm a murderer. So in the book, he's searching for different ways that he could have allegedly done this. I mean, the guy that he went for a McDonald's with that night, he was also pressing him to say, look, we were here for yeah. this long. Then we went to my kitchen. Then I played golf in my garden. Like he was really trying to push his alibi. Definitely. OJ Simpson did not manage to evade the law since the infamous trial of the century. In December 2008, OJ was found guilty of kidnap and armed robbery. In September of the year prior, a group of men led by Simpson held two sports memorabilia sellers at gunpoint and then proceeded to steal items. I mean, most of the items they stole were OJ memorabilia as well because he didn't want them to have to be handed over or mm. sold off to pay the victim's families. He was sentenced to serve 9 to 33 years as he was found guilty on all 12 charges against him. He was sentenced exactly 13 years after his initial acquittal. He was later released in 2017 after serving nine years. So if you're wondering what happened to the Ford Bronco that was used in the police chase of June 1994, it is currently at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum. Originally, a company named Styrofax offered AJ Cowlins $75,000 for the iconic car. However, when Mike Gilbert was made aware that the company wished to use the car to provide tours for fans that which would end at Nicole's grave, Simpson's former agent decided to place the car into storage until 2012. Mike kept the car in pristine condition. Only an additional 20 miles were added to the car during this time. The car was then briefly held at the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas, but was shortly placed back into the storage unit it had previously been held in. In 2017, the car featured... I've seen this as well, it's absolutely wild. The car featured in an episode of Porn Stars under the episode title, If the Porn Don't Fit. If the Porn Don't Fit, You Must Acquit. Mike wanted $1.3 million, but was told multiple times that this was a huge overestimation in reality, like, like most episodes on that show. <laughs> now the car is held at Alcatraz East Crime Museum, but it is there on loan. So hmm. no museums loaned. I, oh, yeah, of course they must. Yeah, they must have like temporary exhibits and stuff. OJ is now a free man and keeps active on Twitter. He has even spoken out about the recent Alex murder trial, which is currently happening. He released a three-minute video of him speaking out about the case after people supposedly asked for his verdict on the case. 
He even joked, I don't know why they think I'm an expert on it, and then goes on to tell his followers that he does think more than likely Alex did kill his wife, but there is too much reasonable doubt. He then proceeds to talk about his armed robbery and how he cannot believe the harsh sentencing he got. I mean, that's OJ's opinion. This trial has gone on and he has been found guilty, so even his opinion on that was wrong. The case continues to divide many. Did OJ do it, or was it someone else? Many have speculated that perhaps OJ was on the scene, but he did not kill Nicole or Ron. Some have speculated that his own son, Jason, may have killed Nicole. Jason was a chef who had a history of being violent, just like his father. He was a product of OJ's first marriage to Marguerite L. Whitley. His father was still married to his mother when he started having an affair with Nicole. Jason began to abuse drugs and alcohol at the age of 14. He also has three recorded attempts to end his own life. Jason had a criminal record at the time of the murders. He had attacked his ex-girlfriend with a knife, and when the murders occurred, he was on probation for attacking a manager with a knife. Jason had confirmed diagnosis of intermittent rage disorder. Intermittent rage disorder, according to Mayo Clinic, involves repeated sudden episodes of impulsive, aggressive, violent behaviour or angry verbal outbursts in which you react grossly out of proportion to the situation. Road rage, domestic abuse, throwing or breaking objects, or other temper tantrums may be signs of intermittent explosive disorder. It's thought that Jason has stopped taking his medication at the times of the murders. Furthermore, a knitted hat thought to have been worn by the murderer had dog hairs on it. Jason owned a dog, and his father did not. In addition to this, people have questioned why his time card, which would have proven that he was at work, was handwritten when the electronic time-stamping device was working perfectly fine, on the evening of the murders. Plus, Jason had no one to corroborate his alibi and his version of events did not match his girlfriend's at the time. Some have also questioned whether Mark Furman killed Nicole and Ron. He was one of the officers who visited the Simpson household on the 1st of January 1989 and so he had a strong dislike for OJ before the murders. But other than that, this theory seems slightly implausible which, yeah, you can understand why. There was also another person named Glenn Rogers who alleges that he killed Nicole. Glenn had allegedly told his brother on his deathbed that he had killed Nicole. Glenn was working as a house painter at the time of the murders and had mentioned Nicole to his brother and sister on multiple times. However, Glenn Rogers was never a suspect within this case. Bill Wass has also claimed that he was hired by one of Simpson's friends to kill Nicole. Originally, he supplied Nicole, OJ and friends with cocaine, and then he was asked to document and take photos of any man that Nicole was seen with by one of Simpson's friends. Then things escalated when the same friend asked him to kill Nicole. It has been alleged the police dismissed these claims at the time, despite the fact that Waz has documented Nicole's movements in a notebook. Yet all his claims just seem to be false. Many have speculated that these murders were drug-related. Nicole was a drug user at the time of her death. Johnny Cochran agrees with this theory. Many have suspected that Nicole owed money to some drug dealers, and this may ultimately have led to her death. Many friends have spoken about Nicole's life in weeks leading up to her death. She allegedly was engaging in threesomes and taking drugs which worried those close to her. However, ultimately no one has ever been taken to trial over this case other than O.J. Simpson. So that drug dealer theory as well. So a friend of Nicole's called Faye said that Nicole had very recently, prior to the murder, um, asked for $50,000 in cash from O.J. as she'd got tangled up with a bad group of uh, drug dealers that may have had ties to the Colombian cartel. And there were some that speculated how bad the crime scene was and how many slashes there were to the throat because yeah. I think both victims had nearly been decapitated and had uh, tried to give both of their victims a Colombian necktie, which is essentially where you slice the throat of your victim and then pull their tongue through the slice that you make. Yeah, so it hangs down like a necktie. Yeah, which is horrific. Yeah, that's that's the yeah. thing with it, because... Yeah, so from what I heard from some of the research I've done as well, is, is, is the, the killings look like someone who's used to using a knife, which OJ hasn't really got history with that, which that kind of makes people doubt that he possibly had done it. 
and yeah, if she's mixed up with the wrong people that with with the drugs, but then it doesn't ex- doesn't explain the glove, doesn't explain all those mm. things. Which if you didn't have OJ's weird behaviour around the case, and you just had that had yeah. the courtroom and the evidence, and then these things, you could go, okay, I won't believe it, but it's just the behaviour he does around it, yeah, and his behaviour since he's he's just seems so sketchy. With, with so so sketchy, yeah. And like obviously we haven't really touched on it, but obviously American football player, you know, regularly clattering yeah. into people. He could quite easily, you know, damage the frontal lobe. You know, we've had other yeah. cases before where people just go off the rails and start acting very, you know, Chris Benoit, for example. Yeah, Aaron Hernandez case. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's, it's not out of the realms of possibility that maybe there's some, some damage there to the frontal lobe and then he could lead him to become into this behaviour. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I thought was quite interesting oh. is that uh, OJ Simpson is not the only one of the Simpson brothers that allegedly killed someone the jingle Ben Carter's interesting facts interesting facts are they I don't know interesting facts facts right welcome so back we, we thought we got nearly got for a whole a whole episode yeah. without an interesting fact a late night interesting fact at that mm. um, so I appreciate you joining me for this one as I said I dropped that bombshell on you OJ Simpson, not the only one of the Simpson brothers that has... Was it Maggie? Oh, he's his brother. Come on. Bart. Um, no, Maggie. Yeah. Money Burns. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, I got it. Yeah, I got it. I, I really, really got it. You didn't have to explain it. I got it. Uh, I got it before you explained it. He said Bart. <laughs> I mentioned right at the start of OJ's childhood, he had a uh, an older brother called Melvin, mm-hmm. who, who actually preferred to go by Truman. So um, OJ's older brother, um, obviously they go way back. They used to collect uh, uh, seat cushions at Kizar Stadium and hand them in, making a buck. He actually had uh, got tied up in a, a pretty suspicious incident himself. Go on. So uh, Truman worked for many years as an airport shuttle bus driver. And in Valentine's weekend of 2005, towards the end of his shift, he'd been working a long 11-hour shift, he began to experience what he claims were flu-like symptoms, though many of the passengers on the on the shuttle he was driving claimed that he fell asleep. When he then crashed his 21-seat shuttle bus, killing one passenger from Arizona and injuring six others. Melvin changed his stories many times since the incident, just like his brother, and OJ was said to have been fuming that his brother would make him look so bad. I mean, this is in 2005. Melvin first told investigators that the dead woman was a homeless person who had wandered onto the freeway. But later, when he realised it was a passenger of his, Simpson said that he had swerved to avoid a car in front of him and she was flung from the vehicle as a result. So first of all, he starts by saying, oh, was it someone I hit? Mm. Rather than someone... You can't call that a murder. Well, I mean, he's ended that person, that poor person's life but by being reckless. But it's manslaughter, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, but still... Oh, so still, still, I still have you. I still have you. <laughs> Passengers that were also on the on the shuttle were interviewed by California Highway Patrol, and they say that they never saw a woman or a car swerve in front of the bus. They just said that they felt the van move to the right and then drift off to the left, and looked up, and their driver was asleep. No one says they saw a car, so the likelihood of him dozing off is probably pretty good. However, no charges have come forward, and um, he actually later passed away. The brother, so. Can't really go much further than that, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, Melvin would actually later pass away, so never actually ended up, you know, facing any kind of punishment mm. for this alleged crime. So I just thought, yeah, tie it in with the case. Yeah, yeah, you know, definitely. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, he earned a lot of money. It's a bonus little one. 
you probably guessed this though, I reckon. So I just thought because OJ earned money, yeah. Sorry. Uh, OJ earned loads of money, but and he got some good deals, right? Big endorsement deals, mm. got a million a year from uh, Hertz. I, I just thought, who's who's the athlete in the world that's got the biggest ever endorsement deal? I think you get it if you think about it. Michael Jordan? He is not on the list. Cristiano Ronaldo uh. signed a $1 billion contract with Nike or Nike, depending on which side of the Nike or Nike argument you fall in. That's big. That's that is big. big. Yeah. Yeah. $1 billion contract. Mm. Crazy, isn't it? Pretty nice. There's some, and there's some skeletons in his closet as well, maybe. Maybe those will come out one day. Allegedly. Allegedly, of course, come, yeah. yeah. He probably have quite good lawyers. Probably, yeah. Cool. Well, th- thank you for that interesting fact, I guess, Ben. Yeah. You're welcome. Should we move on to lookalikes then? Yeah, I, I haven't done any because I didn't think we did them for celebs, but you have some, so we'll go on to the lookalikes. Play the jingle. What does it look like? That looks a bit like that. Yeah, it looks a bit like it. Right, okay, boys. Uh, well, as, as it's just myself this week, I've, I've got three for you. Why don't you just pick two? <laughs> At least you can say it. No, I've got three. So okay, I've got I've got one for OJ, one for Nicole, and one for Ron. So I've done one for each. Oh, for the dead. Okay. No, but they're pretty good. OJ Simpson, I've gone Candyman. Two lookalikes for everyone. It's inclusive. It doesn't look anything like it. It's just a black what? man looking. It's Candyman. He's a black man looking the same direction. That's literally all it is. Uh, I'll put them up. That's a pretty good one. OJ Simpson, Candyman. Nicole Simpson, I've gone a little bit. Jessica Simpson, no relation. Yeah, that's a good one. That's not bad. And then Dan will like this one. You'll you'll both like them, hopefully. But yeah. Dan will like this one. He was singing him earlier. Ron Goldman, Tom DeLonge from the Always video. What from that video? Because he's wearing a suit. Yeah. But also looks a bit Tom DeLonge. He, he looks like someone else. He's yeah. Like, looks like a wrestler. A wrestler? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, the warrior. Oh, no, Sting. Oh, ahead. Sting. Yeah, Sting's not a bad shout. Mm. So, yeah. That's my look like he's Sting. <laughs> I'm going for Sting. So, there you have it. And of course, I want to thank Gully Garms for dressing us this series. But for a bit of an 80s, 90s theme, didn't we, today? You've got it some is. fishes going on the, on the ground. some fishes. It's uh, Santa Barbara as well, which I think is in LA. So, Santa Barbara. I Santa Barbara's not LA. Oh, California still? Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm in Cali. <laughs> West Coast. I'm on the West Coast. And yeah, a big thank you to Gully Gums. They've looked after us this season and they're going to look after you. If you want your vintage retro gums, guys and gals, head over to Gully Gums and use our codes KILLTOM. Kill Ben! And Kill Ben. Um, really? And that gets you 30% off. Yeah, well, they're already discounted prices. Yes. You'd be, you'd be an idiot not to, really. Absolutely. And you may have noticed throughout the episode that we have a cheeky little mascot in Tom's Corner. This is from Rudy and Bear. And we've got a little note with this package, this lovely little delivery. Dear Tom, Ben and Dan, we hope you love your new ICMAP Ned mascot. Ned. Uh, it was so much fun to paint. We all love the podcast so much. Thanks for filling our ears with true crime goodness from Jazz and the R&B team. It's bloody cute, is Ned. I love it. it's called Ned as well. I didn't realise it's called Ned. It makes me like it even And you more. can go and follow them uh, at Rudy and Bear on Instagram. Very cool. Very sweet. Thank you so much. Thank love you, guys. That. Love that. The cult of ICMAP. More. <laughs> oh, we've had a couple of applications. Ooh. If you're ready for them. Oh, I was born and now I'm ready. Okay. Here we have a voice application from... Lee. 
Hello, Lee. Hi, Lee. What's the story, lads? Lee here from Ireland. Yeah. And this is an application for me and my best mate, Terence, to join the cult of OCMAP. Um, we don't do anything too interesting for work, but we are multi-time tag team champions in wrestling. Wow. And we know you boys are big fans of wrestling. Um, we've worked with names like X-Pac, Scotty Tawati. Oh, fucking hell, you wow. definitely uh, you know, amongst others from the Attitude Era and early Ruthless Aggression Era that I know you boys watched. Rhino. And if we get accepted into the cult, we'll put our tag team titles on the line against <laughs> Ben and Tom. And Dan can be the special referee. Oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, I see him in the <laughs> And if we don't get accepted, we're going to 3D Tom through a table. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it'd be an honour. That yeah. is amazing. Wow. Buzzing with that. That would be 100% so cool. 100% in, just because, well, mainly because I don't want to be free yeah. for a table. <laughs> I love the Irish accent as well. Yeah. Just, it's just a great He accent. sounded strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bold as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. As in, what? Just bold as in, I don't think he'd be scared of I thought you meant no hair. Oh, no, not bald. Okay. Bold as in, you know, wouldn't be fair. Yeah, I wouldn't be getting, don't, no, don't piss wouldn't. him off. No, <laughs> he's getting 3D through the team. No, I'm right? not, because I said he did. Uh, yeah, no, I, I very much echo that. Okay. It could be the Echo Brothers, maybe. Nah. Step, maybe Step Brothers. That's fine, yeah. Even better. But yes, you know, I love that. X-Pac, Rhino, Scotty Too Hotty. So Lee and Terrence, uh, the cult welcomes you with open yes. arms. I, w- I want to see... I believe you. Just what, I want to <laughs> see you. I just want to see it. Can you send us some... DM us some, um, some links to things and pictures yeah. and stuff. I'd be fascinated to see it. Yeah, welcome to the cult. Yeah. Dan, that. Dan is a special referee. I could 100% see that. Oh, yeah. He'd be very stick to the rules. Though. It wouldn't <laughs> be a fun one. It'd just be like a normal referee, but just... No fast count. Just, as re- <laughs> just referee wearing shorts. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, one more if you're up for it. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's from a band. <gasps> oh my goodness! Oh yeah. Here we go. Good, isn't it? Wow. wow, you changed that quickly. That was flippity flippity quick. Microchips. There you go. For people who are listening, Dan uh, just miraculously changed into a, into a band T-shirt. <laughs> That's why you should watch the fucking YouTube. That's really aggressive, Dan. Yeah. Um, so we've got a, uh, a little written cult application. Oh, handwritten. Along, along Bloody the, hell. Along with the two cents. Bloody hell, Hermione. As follows. To the ICMAP cult masters. Thank you. Oh, love that. Uh, ha- hey, boys. I hope you like the T-shirts sent from me and my band. We do. We love them. And I hope we're considered for the house band or the cult providing eerie music. Oh. But also playing pop punk bangers yeah. uh, and our own heavy music. Oh, okay. Which we can play a bit now. <laughs> Open that pit up! Let's oh. get a circle. If anyone falls down, we pick them back up. That's sick. Let's Hold go. On. There you go. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> I would get a cult going, wouldn't it? Yeah. We could also try and bring in other bands uh, to the cult and have a festival called I Could Murder a Festival. Oh, that's, I mean, that's cracking. Yeah, that's cracking. Yeah. We've also sent some stickers. There they are. Ooh. I'm going to pop it on my laptop. My, can... my laptop hasn't got anything on because I'm keeping yeah. it clean. So, um, but Ben's. I'm a scruffy boy. Love from Nathan Crawshaw. Nathan Legend, thank you very much. Yeah, there thank you, you go, so look. much for the t-shirts as well. Nice one, Nathan. Oh, I mean, it's, it's a yes. It's a yes from us, right? You're in. Yes. I mean, how many people are in his band? Because this cult is growing, isn't it? We'll oh, just let a tag team it's in. It's a 28 piece. <laughs> oh, rats. They got around us. Big band. Big band. Lots of drummers. Lots of toms on that drum key, you know what I mean? 
Bridge the Divide. Yeah, very cool. Well, we've got a band and we've got a tag team. So that's the song we're playing is Where Have You Been? If you like the sound of it, go check it out on Spotify. Yeah, and they could play entrance music for well, the I tag team. I was thinking that. They, it's a great, great bit of music there. Oh, lovely crossover there. I love that. It's lovely to know we have creative, interesting listeners. <laughs> which, uh, uh, yeah. which, I mean, I assume they would be, but it's wrestlers, bands, score. Oh, love yeah. it. And Rudy and the Bear, by the way, there. For, for our little Ned, they're an easy pass into the car. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. They yeah, didn't even need to in. ask. Ned was like, can I? I was like, yeah, Ned. Shut up. It's not your podcast. But um, fair play to him and them. Really. So that, that wraps up the OJ Simpson uh, case, the OJ Simpson trial, the trial of the century. Yeah, a, a, a big episode. And the big episodes just aren't stopping got another big episode next week and then we move on to our audience vote which has been decided it is the murder of james bolger which i know in previous episodes and on other podcasts we've been on i've been quite adamant that i didn't want to cover that case but i mean the way this series has gone we've we've covered a lot of quite harrowing cases and it's important to shine a light on events such as that yeah a lot of people were saying you know because Ben had expressed that he didn't want to do it people were being like you know stick to your guns with that um, and you know being like you guys don't have to cover it if you don't want to well I mean we really appreciate that it was very nice of you to say that but at the same time me and Ben have been discussing it behind the scenes and we said that you know that and along with the one I was mentioning Dunblane we would be open to covering it if we really were against covering it we wouldn't have, have of course put it in the polls and we yeah. would have kind of made a point of saying that but um, thank you so much to everyone to support us and saying you know, don't need to cover it but we are we will be ready we want to cover the case and we want to do it justice and obviously there's a lot of people out there who, who want us to cover it so we're going to cover it and a lot of people have said that they wouldn't be able to, to watch that one which we completely appreciate and respect yeah, yeah. Um, that's completely your call I, I mean everyone has an opinion on it so it's going to be a very interesting case a lot of people are affected by that case so yes we, we hope to do it justice for you and then we'll have the series finale so to stay in the loop of all things icmap all of the socials are at could murder a pod instagram twitter facebook we also have a brand spanking new shiny website which we're so so proud of we've got over a hundred episodes on there right now exclusive episodes with some big big ones coming up by becoming a member on our website you are automatically into the cult you get access to our exclusive live streams and discord and we're also going to have our little kind of side podcast which isn't true crime which we're still coming up for a name for yes yes we're going to talk all sorts of different things and it's, it's worth noting as well on that once you sign up to it unlike patreon we actually will have a different rss feed so you'll be able to listen to the audio episodes independently it wouldn't be a case you have to be logged on the website we've got that sorted out now so um it'll be if you're an audio listener rather than a visual listener it's very easy to access the episodes just for, from the audio basis and um talking about big cases we just covered chris chan if you know who that is on a minnesota yeah. over on there which isn't really a minnesota but it's uh yeah we covered that so we've got lots of interesting different cases over there worth checking out it's also cheaper than patreon which is a fantastic win for everybody it so is. yeah so why not head over to icma so, <laughs> I said that pair. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that, Danny boy. Oh, so why not? <laughs> not immediate. So why not head over to icmap.co.uk? It's not going to go in the far. So why not head over to icmap.co.uk and join the cult today? We also have exclusive lines of merch over on there. Um, which are which are just fantastic. So thank you ever so much to everyone for supporting us. If you're on YouTube, why not like us? Click that little likey button. Subscribe to the channel if you're not. Leave us a comment. Tell your friends about us. And if you're on audio, why not? My eyes are watering. And if you're on, you can't smell anything all night. Your nose has been fucking blocked. You smell that fucking shit in your knickers. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
And if you're an audio listener, um, why not leave us a review? We'd love for five stars. That'd be beautiful. And, and uh, if you guys, if you have Spotify, you've noticed that we there's a little question you can answer now on, on our Spotify's on the episodes now, which is fun. So I might put a, qu- a quirky little question on this one. Okay, that sounds good. A bit of a quirky one, rather than just what do you think about the episode? You commenting back on that, it really helps us out. It puts us out there, and more people will see it. So we appreciate that. So any support there would be much appreciated. Anyway, that's about enough from us. We'll see you next week with another big case. Thank you so much for listening or watching the podcast. We appreciate it so much. And we'll see you very, very, very soon. And like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, unless. It's looking for spirit levels and hammers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's probably going to make it in. Um, oh, definitely. In. <laughs> definitely. Um, lying about your McDonald's time spent. Alibis, trying to force an alibi, chipping the balls. Putting your knickers during the podcast? Yeah. Getting the pit started. Come on, motherfuckers! (laughs) I want to do triple A. Two pip! <laughs> yeah? yeah, I'm good now. Very fidgety, so that no, it's, in a, it's in a good place. Well, you fidget when you're happy. Yeah. Well fucking get <laughs> miserable. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.